Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. After Stephen's death, Saul of Tarsus began to aggressively persecute the church. Today, Pastor Jason examines the apostles' response to this persecution in a sermon he's entitled, Scattered but Not Silent. Join us now in part 29 of this walk through the book of Acts. Here's Jason. Well, turn with me in your your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And as you turn there, let me frame where we're going today. With a question, I'm sure we've all had times in our lives where where things just did not go the way that we had planned, right? We had aspirations. We thought this was going to work this way. And in fact, it flipped upside down and, and, and didn't go any such way. It might have scared us to death. It might have brought us to the point to where we had no idea what was going to happen. And yet, even in these kinds of times, we can see that God is not limited. And as I was thinking about the first missionary in Christ Church, who we are going to see today, Philip, I, I kept coming back to five missionaries that I heard about so many years ago. And, and it was through their testimony that, that I got introduced to missions, I got excited about missions, and that, that my family and I ended up going over to Papua New Guinea and, and planting, by God's grace, a, a church there in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. The, those five men are, are Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, and, and, and Roger Udarian. You, you probably heard their story. How in, in 1956, on January 8th, these men who had come to share the gospel with this unreached people group on the Kurere River in Ecuador were killed. They were martyred right there on the spot. And I am certain that many, many well-meaning believers looked at that, at their deaths, and, and, and they thought, man, what a waste. What, what a waste. Why would they do that? Why would they put themselves in harm's way? And, and yet the reality is that that is not a waste at all in God's economy. That God can use something like that as He used it in my life and so many other lives to challenge. Just listen to the words of, of Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, in a book, a great book that I, I'd recommend called Through Gates of Splendor. She says it like this. To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God has His plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in the Mato Grosso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know Jesus. An Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. Off the coast of Italy, an an American naval officer was involved in an accident at sea. And as he floated on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. 
He prayed that, that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than die. He was not ready, and God answered his prayer, and he was rescued. Then in Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room and then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to take the place of one of those five. And as we consider what we saw last week in the book of Acts, seeing the first martyr in Christ's church, seeing Stephen, you might be tempted to think, oh, what a waste. What a waste of such a valuable resource of a man so gifted who was a servant of the Lord, who who was a a man filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit continually, who also was obviously a great preacher. And yet his life was cut short. And you might think, man, what a waste. Perhaps even the church, the believers in this day, in Stephen's day, looked at his death with, with uncertainty, with more questions than answers, wondering what God was doing. How could you allow this to happen to so faithful a servant as Stephen? Perhaps even asking, Lord, why didn't you stop this? But you see, God does not work through normal means. God is not confined to a little box of how we think he should work. God is not limited. And that's what we're going to see this morning. That he can take a a life, even a short-lived life like Stephen. He can take five lives like he did these martyrs in Ecuador. And he can use it for good. Sorry. (laughs) So this morning, what we're going to see is scattered but not silent. We're going to see God work in spite of this crazy persecution that comes upon the church. We're going to see God work in spite of the first martyr. In fact, we're going to see God use that for his glory, for his purpose, for the expansion of Christ's church. Look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8 with me. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Speaking of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And finally, so there was much rejoicing in that city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We pray now that you would open our eyes to grasp what you want us to grasp, to understand the significance that you are a sovereign God in control of all things. 
who can even take the evil plans of man and flip them upside down and accomplish your will. We pray now, Lord, that as we look at your wonderful word, that you would allow us to give attention to your word, that your spirit would make it clear, that you would speak to us through your word and continue to transform our minds, to renew our minds, to make us more and more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we think back to what has been happening in the church, in Christ's church, particularly here in Jerusalem, we have to recognize that, that the opposition to the church has been escalating. It has been increasing. That in the beginning days, the, the people of Jerusalem, they, they welcomed the believers and what was going on. And even the leadership of the Jewish nation, they, they they weren't putting up a hand of opposition against them until we got all the way to, to Acts chapter 4, verse 20, 21. And how did they start? They started with, with just a warning saying, hey, no, you can no longer preach in this name. And then we see it escalate in chapter 5 because they do not heed the warning. They keep preaching the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse, verse 40, we see them flogged. We see the apostles whipped because of the name of Jesus. And then last week, we, we saw it raised up to, to a whole nother level as Stephen, because of what he was preaching, preaching Christ as Stephen was martyred. And today what we are going to see is the persecution now becomes widespread. And it no longer goes after just the apostles, but goes after the, the entire church. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a threefold chain of, of cause and effect. That Stephen's martyrdom starts something. It causes a, a great persecution. And this persecution causes something. It causes a, the church to be scattered in a great dispersion. And, and then this great dispersion, the scattering of the church, results in a widespread evangelism. And in your notes, I, I've outlined it like this. The Basically, four components that are involved in the in this persecution and the result of the persecution. The first component, then, is the man. And we're going to see him. We've already been introduced to him. We're going to see him in verse 1. Very clear. We're going to see the manner by which he persecutes the church. And we'll see that in, in verse 3. And then we'll see this, the movement of the church. What happens as a result of the man and the manner and the way that it is persecuted? And we'll see that in verses 4 to 7 as the church scatters, but is not silent. And finally, we'll see the result. And that is that there is much, much rejoicing. No doubt over the gospel. So, so look with me at, at verse 1. And let's see first the man. The man behind this persecution. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Let me stop there. This sentence actually belongs with chapter 7 because it is the concluding statement of all that happened and namely the martyrdom of Stephen. You see, it wasn't just that 
Saul was in some sort of position of authority and, and that it was merely these men laid these cloaks down as witnesses at, at, at Saul's feet. That he was just merely giving a, a thumbs up. That he was just giving passive consent. No, it, it's the idea that he was actively approving and participating in this event. Even further, it seems to suggest that he was actually pleased with the murder of Stephen. And we're going to see that in Saul. He's not only pleased with the murder of Stephen, he wants to see more believers put to death. And so we see the man described as Saul. And what happens? Well, a great persecution takes place. Look at the remainder of of verse 1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So first it gives us the time. When exactly did this happen? On that day. What day is that? The day that Stephen was martyred. The day that Stephen was killed. That very day. We don't even know if the final stone had been thrown yet. And what does Saul do? He's already gathering a crew to do what? To go after the other believers. His intention is not to stop with Stephen. His intention is to destroy Christ's church. And as a result, we see that they're scattered. But should this take us by surprise? Should this have taken them by surprise? No, I I don't think so. Because Christ had already told them that this would indeed happen. In John 15.20, Jesus said it like this. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16.2, he says it like this. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That is what Saul is thinking. He is thinking that he is serving God by persecuting Christ's church. By destroying Christ's church. And as a result, the church what? The church scatters. And we're going to see that even though the church scatters, it is not silent. And isn't it interesting that that when it says that the church scatters, look at where they go. Scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Have we not heard of these regions before? This was Christ's intention. This was Christ's command. Back in Acts 1.8, He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses where? Both in Jerusalem here and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost part of the earth. That's what we're going to see happen now. And up to this point, I have to believe they're comfortable in Jerusalem. And that if God hadn't allowed this to happen, they would have stayed in Jerusalem. But instead, God sends them out. Literally pushing them out. And it says who was involved in this. It says that that they were all scattered. Does that mean that every believer in the Jerusalem church was scattered and, and went to Judea and Samaria? No, because we know that the apostles didn't. And if all the believers were scattered, then the church of 
in Jerusalem would have stopped. And yet we're going to see the church in Jerusalem again and again throughout the book of Acts. At the end of chapter 8, we'll see the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 9, we'll see Jerusalem church. In chapter 11, chapter 15, even chapter 21. We will continually see the church in Jerusalem. So who, who is it talking about? I don't believe it's all the believers that are in the Jerusalem church. I believe he's, he's getting a segment of all the believers. And he's saying it's the Hellenistic Jews. Those Jews that would have identified with Stephen. That's the target that Saul goes after. Perhaps because that was the synagogue that he was from. And so he actually knew them. And he could go to their houses because he knew where their houses were, perhaps. And why didn't the apostles go? Well, well, I'd say namely that the first reason is, is because they recognized that they were the under shepherds. And that because not everyone was leaving, they needed to stay with the flock and continue to preach and teach and shepherd and look after the flock and love on them. But we also know from church history that they don't always stay in Jerusalem, that they will be forced to leave as well. But at this point in the history of the church, the target, the bullseye goes on these Hellenistic Jews. And yet we know that that some of the Jews in this city actually didn't have the same attitude as as Saul had. Look at verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. We have to understand that it was a tremendous disrespect, even a humiliation and an abandonment to leave Stephen like that, to not give him a proper burial. Even though he was considered a criminal, it was still within his legal right and something that was within their cultural framework that he had to have a proper burial. But that proper burial did not include Somebody lamenting and crying over him. They they had to be quiet about it. And yet the fact that these men, these devout men, and we don't know if they're Jewish believers or not, it doesn't tell us, that these men went ahead and they cried. And what are they revealing? They're revealing that, that the way that Stephen died wasn't right. And so they are protesting against the death of Stephen. And they're really showing their love for Stephen. Which is shown in direct contrast to to we see Saul and and where his heart is at. Saul is on the other side of the pendulum. On the complete other perspective. Instead of being loving and kind and even thinking about such things towards the church or towards Stephen. We see what Saul was like. Look at verse 3 as we see next. Not just the man, not just what he was thinking, that he was pleased with what was happening, but now we see the manner in which he was doing this. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This word ravaging isn't a small little word. It's, It's incredibly telling. It's to cause harm, to destroy, to wreak havoc upon something. It's the word used to destroy a city. 
It's the word used to, to talk about an animal, a wild animal tearing at the meat of its flat, of its prey, ripping apart its meat. What's the point? The point is, is that Saul was ruthless. Saul was ruthless in his undertaking to go after the church. He's wanting to destroy the church. And yet even in, in the Greek, in, in the tense that, that this is in the Greek, there, there's this aspect that, that says that he's beginning this process. He's beginning in, to destroy the church, but his intention is to destroy all of the church. And yet, in the Greek, the understanding is that he will not be able to do that. That Christ has other plans and that there is no way to stop the building of Christ's church. No matter whether you are Satan or you are Saul. Christ is going to accomplish his work of building his church. But it doesn't just tell us what his frame of mind was, that he was like a wild animal going after them. It actually tells us the way that he went after them. It's almost personal in the way that he goes after them. That he's going from church to church. Much like as you think about the community groups that we started. That he then would go after them church by church. And, and, and when it says that, that he was dragging off the men and the women, not just the men, but the women. That, that word is the word used for, for filling a net of, full of fish and pulling that net along. That, that's what he was doing. And he was dragging them off to prison. Does that mean that the intention that he had, the purpose was to just merely put people in jail. No, I believe that, that Saul's heart was, was much more wicked than that. Turn with me to, to Acts 26, and, and we'll kind of go forward. And later we'll, we'll see this entire scenario unfold as, as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Acts. But let me just share this with us all this morning. This is so telling. As at this point, Saul, who has become the Apostle Paul, who is now saved, he reflects back on this day and this time. And this is what he has to say about that. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Speaking of this day, back in Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's what he wanted. He wanted them to die. But listen, it goes further. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force force them to blaspheme, to turn against Christ, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. It wasn't enough for him just to go after them in Jerusalem. Wherever they went, he was going to follow. Why? Because he wanted to destroy Christ's church and all those that were represented in Christ's church. And persecution is now coming hard at the church. And if I were to stop this sermon here, this would be incredibly depressing, would it not? Incredibly dark, dreary, dismal. This isn't the kind of day any of us wants to have. This isn't the kind of history any of us wants to have, but, but as you and I know so many times, testimonies of how the Lord saves someone are just amazing. How God takes them from the mire that they were in in this crazy, terrible state, such as some of these children 
in the foster care system. And what does God do? God does the miraculous and transforms their lives and gives them hope. And now we're going to see that God does something amazing here as well. As he fulfills his purpose through this, the movement. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. As a result of what? Of the persecution. Because of the hatred of Saul and what he is doing, it's actually accomplishing God's purposes. And let me just speak to this word preaching. I don't believe it's the best translation for this word. Because in our minds, when you think preaching, you think, oh yes, okay, this is, this is a formal preacher who spent an entire week preparing for this message. And now he's standing up and he's giving the word like this. Or, or, or you're thinking, oh, a formal missionary. He's gone through training and he's, no, that, that's not at all what this is picturing. This is picturing evangelism. On the spot, on the fly evangelism. Ordinary people giving an extraordinary message. That's what this is picturing. Not somebody who's prepared this long sermon, but somebody who someone asked them, well, why are you here? How come you're no longer in Jerusalem? Well, let me tell you, it's because of this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Have you heard of him? And then they'd go right into the gospel. That, that's what God is doing. That's what is being depicted here. And isn't it interesting that as you think about this, Saul no doubt thought, oh, I am close to victory. I am dismantling the church. I am destroying Christ's church. And no doubt Satan was thinking the same exact thing. And yet the very thing that Satan was promoting, that Satan was pushing, instead of destroying the church, actually builds the church actually grows the church, actually expands the church. So in essence, instead of smothering the gospel, instead of stopping Christ's church, it actually does the complete opposite. It adds oxygen to that fire and the persecution actually spreads the gospel and spreads the work of Christ as only God can do. And we don't have to look too far back in, in even the history of missions to see some of these things happening. I, I think of China. And in 1949, the, the communists took over. And there were many missionaries serving in China at that time, including the China Inland Mission that Hudson Taylor served for. And at that time, the government said, okay, no more. And they kicked 637 missionaries out of China. And yet, you know what God did? God used over, like almost half of those missionaries, 286, he relocated in other areas. So they now became missionaries in Japan, in Southeast Asia. And you know what? The Lord didn't need the missionaries in China. Why? Because he had national believers there. And he used those national believers and their faith and what they were doing evangelizing in spite of the incredible persecution. And they kept preaching and they kept evangelizing. And the church in China grew and grew and grew. And now they say that compared to what it was in Hudson Taylor's day, it's 30 or 40 times larger. In much the same way that we, that we're, we will see in, in the book of Acts. To where Satan thought he was gaining a victory. But he was not gaining a victory because you cannot stop the hand of our God. 
you cannot stop Christ from building his church. And so then he gives us one particular person that the, that the Lord uses in the expansion of his church in verses five and six. And that person is Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So we saw last week with, with Stephen that he was indeed the first martyr in Christ church, who we see now is Philip, the first missionary in Christ church. And that makes sense because they were named one and two when it when when we were told about the seven men that would take over for the Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked. But what's not so normal is where he goes. Of all the places to go, this is the last place you would think a Jew would go, to Samaria. Why? Because for over a thousand years, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. Majorly hostile towards one another. Why is that? Well, it's kind of complicated, but it goes all the way back to the nation of Israel, to the northern kingdom, and their rebellion, and their continuous rebellion until finally the Lord sends along the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire comes and takes over, completely overpowers the northern kingdom. And then what happens? Then they drive them out. And they scatter them abroad. They disperse them. And so these Israelites settle in some of these pagan lands. And as they settle in these pagan lands, they mix with with these other nations, these other people. And those people become known as the Samaritans. And if that isn't bad enough, it gets worse. Because as they look at God's word, the Old Testament, they say, you know, we really don't like anything outside of the Pentateuch. So, so we're cool with the first five books of the Old Testament, but anything else, that's not God's Word. And all that we're going to take as God's Word are the first five books. And this, of course, upsets the Jews, but that's not the only thing that upsets the Jews. They also come up with their own place of worship. They don't come to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. They construct their own temple in Gerizim. And then on top of all of that, as they look back at their own heritage, the Samaritans say, oh, you know what? We're actually a remnant of you all of the nation of Israel. We are indeed Jews. And you can trace us back to to the tribe of Ephraim and to the tribe of Manasseh. And so how do the Jews respond? Well, they respond by calling them outcasts, by calling them heretics, by calling them half-breeds, and in practice treating them much like they are Gentiles. And that's the scenario, that's the background. Enter Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He breaks all of those barriers and he goes to the Samaritans and he meets the woman at the well. And in John 4, 20 to 25, we're we're told the story of how Jesus reaches out to her. And yet, even in that story, we see so much hope contained. Why? Because as she responds to him, what does she say? She says, oh yes, we're waiting for a Messiah, for a Savior to come. So they have been primed. They, they've been readied to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Which it, no doubt is the reason why you see them giving such attention to what Peter or what Philip is preaching to them. 
That means to pay close attention to, to be eager to hear something, to not be distracted. And that is indeed what they are doing. But God also gives them something else to to validate Philip as the messenger. It's not just what he is saying, which which is the most important thing, right? Because he is giving them the gospel. But he also validates the messenger by giving him signs or giving them signs through him. Look at verse 7. What are these signs? For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So we see two things happening. On the one hand, he's, he's doing healing, which again, as we saw in the life of Stephen, but up to this point, we've only seen in the life of the apostles. And, and then there's this other side of what he's doing, that he's casting demons out of people. And let me just say a word about casting out of demons. Many people ask me, oh, Pastor Jason, because you were a missionary for so long in Papua New Guinea, what do you think about, about demon possession? Does that really happen today? And I would say, yes. And in countries like that, where they're so tied in with the spirits, I believe it's, it, yeah, it's, it's in the open. It's right there. Here in America, it's a little bit more difficult to see. And yet in thinking through this, if I were to ask you how many of you have a ministry of, of healing the paralyzed, no doubt not hardly any of you, most likely. Nobody's going to raise their hand. If I asked you how many times have, have you actually casted a demon out of someone, you would there then say the same, oh no, but sure, I'm sure you have, Pastor Jason, no. We, we have to remember that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Meaning that this is describing what is happening in this church, but this doesn't mean that this is going to happen in every church from this point on. Philip is, is Christ's first missionary sent from their church. And God uses him. So, so what, what do you think that this idea of you and I having some sort of sign that the Lord would use to, to cause others to be, to be pulled to Christ through our interaction with them. What does that look like for you? Does that, does that look like a ministry of, of casting demons out? Probably not. Does it look like a ministry of you healing someone? Probably not. I, I would say it looks more like the fact that you love your neighbors. That unlike everybody else, you actually are kind and gracious to your neighbor. And when you hear they're sick, you come over with, I don't know, banana bread. <laughs> that, that you, when you coach your son's little league team, instead of cussing your head off, you are gracious and kind and loving towards those children. And that speaks volumes to those that watch you. When you go to work, how do you function? Are you just like everyone else or do you actually have a, a different standard? And by God's grace, I would hope that we all have a different standard, a standard that is his standard. I, I believe those are the signs the Lord wants to use. But, but let me wrap things up because this, this is so encouraging. To see in the, in the midst of all this darkness, of all this dream, even this murder, that God is doing something. That this is all part of God's plan. And, and look at the end result. Stephen, you, you don't see this in his sermon. You don't, you don't see any fruit from his sermon that you would think of. You don't see 5,000 converted. 
You don't see everybody repenting. They actually pick up stones and they kill him. And yet the reality is Christ is continuing to build his church. Look at verse 8. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Not a little bit of rejoicing, much rejoicing. Does that mean there's much rejoicing over the demons that have been cast out? Over all the people that have been healed, being paralyzed and lame and and this and that? No. Why? Because in Luke's writing, when he talks about rejoicing, over and over and over again, it's in the context of conversion. It's in the context of someone being saved or talking about the testimony of someone being saved, as we will see later on in Acts. In Acts chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 15, they're going to talk about how the Gentiles were saved. And when they hear that, they rejoice. And earlier, if if we were to look at Luke 15 and these very well-known parables of the lost sheep of the hundred, of the lost coin and of the prodigal son. What is the point? The point is the rejoicing that happens over the lost that has now been found. That is the rejoicing that is going on here. The rejoicing over the lost that had been found, that God is saving, that Jesus is saving and continuing to build His church. And where is He doing it? He's doing it in the most likely place, in Samaria. And we're going to see that. By God's wonderful grace, we're going to see that. So we've seen today that that God uses even this man, Saul, and He's going to use him much, much more as the Apostle Paul. This is just the beginning of his story. As for many of you, this is the beginning of your story. Of what God wants to do through you. This is the beginning of, of Saul's story. And even in the terrible state that he's in, even wanting to destroy Christ's church, the Lord still uses him. As He's grabbing believers and dragging them to the prison in order to have them murdered. He uses the movement of the church, the scattering of the church, to do what? To get them out of Jerusalem. To expand the church, to grow the church. And ultimately to bring Him glory and bring much joy to those that trust in Him. Because that is the God that we serve. And that is the God of the Bible as He reveals to us himself let me close with with two points to ponder consider how it was god's will that believers be persecuted have you ever thought of god's will for you being suffering or even persecution because you should because that is what god's word teaches that that's what god uses we see him using it here in acts he still uses suffering and pain to bring us to himself to cause us to become more like his son the second one consider how the crowds were given giving attention to what was preached by philip how eager are you to hear the word of god and respond to it as you hear the word of god either in a message or in your own quiet times how attentive are you to what god is saying or are you tempted like i am To just give it that 30 minutes because that's what everybody does. And really when you're spending time in the Word, you're thinking about, you're watching what you're going to do once this time is done. Or perhaps right now you're thinking, and you have been thinking more about what you're going to do for lunch than what God's Word is teaching us throughout the book of Acts in chapter 8. Man, are we eager to hear God's Word? Are we giving it attention? 
Let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you once again as, as we continue to walk through the book of Acts for how rich and deep your wonderful word is. We pray that you would use what we are learning from the book of Acts, from the early church, from men like Philip, even men like Saul, that you would use that in our lives to expand our understanding of how great you are and how nothing stops your plans and your purposes and that you are growing your church. Allow us to be used by you in our neighborhoods. Lord, you have indeed scattered us We don't all live in the same house here. We don't live in this church. You've scattered us abroad. Allow us to be your servants, your stewards, your spokesmen throughout this area. In Jesus' precious name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.